Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. Our guest today is Harvey Markowitz, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology. Before arriving at WNL in 2003, Harvey taught in South Dakota at Sinta Gleska University, a tribal college on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. Later, he spent nine years as associate and acting director of the Darcy McNichol Center for American Indian and Indigenous Studies at the Newbury Library in Chicago. His research interests include interrelationships among American Indian religions, landscapes, culture, histories, and identities. He holds a PhD in the history of Christianity from the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. His dissertation, Converting the Rosebud, Catholic Mission and the Chicago Lakotas, was published in book form in 2018. Harvey, it's great to see you back on campus. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me here. Let's begin at the beginning. What lit the spark? Why did you decide to study anthropology? Uh, it's an interesting question, and uh, with a whole group of new students just having gone through uh, registration, uh, it brought to mind my first year in college and my meeting with my academic advisor, and we were trying to decide whether I should take um, uh, astronomy, introduction to astronomy, or I should take introduction to cultural anthropology. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I think you'd do better in introduction to cultural anthropology. And having been to a Chicago public high school where uh, we didn't have any fancy classes named anthropology or anything like that, or AP classes to be sure, at that time at least, I didn't even know what cultural anthropology was, so I went to the first class, and I found out that uh, it was the study of different peoples, their cultures, their societies throughout space and time, and I thought, hmm, this might be interesting, and so I decided to stay in the class. Now, one of the books that we had to read uh, was this mammoth uh, ethnography by a guy named Bronislav Malinowski called Argonauts of the Western Pacific. And I was, I, I remember myself just lying on my bed as a first-year student, you know, eating pizza or whatever, and uh, reading through with some interest what Malinowski had to say about the Troberand uh, Islanders who he was uh, with, uh, working with. And eventually it got for the fir to the first bank of pictures. And for the first time, I saw photos of the Torbrand Islanders themselves. And they were dressed in, women were dressed in their little grass skirts and men in loincloths in their village. And they were celebrating uh, Sagali, which is a redistribution feast for the Torbrand Islanders. And it suddenly struck me that these people get up every morning, just as I do, just as all my friends did, all my relatives did, everybody I know did, and take the world for granted. And it was such a different world than the world that I took for granted. And that just amazed me, how such different worlds could exist among different peoples taken for granted. And the reality of a pluralistic cultural universe struck me hard for the first time. And I was hooked on anthropology. 
During this time while you were studying anthropology, um, an advisor encouraged you to visit a reservation in South Dakota to translate German diaries. And, and it's surprising to me that one could find German diaries on an Indian reservation in South Dakota. Would you explain what Germans were doing in South Dakota and tell us more about their diaries and their connection to the missions? Yes, it's, it is surprising in a way, unless you know something about the history of American Indian policy uh, at the time where these, when these Germans uh, were uh, on the Rosebud Lakota Reservation um, in South Dakota. It was Dakota, actually, at that time. It hadn't been divided between North and South Dakota. And they had been assigned um, uh, by the government uh, or and by their uh, their superior, they were talking about here about German Jesuits who were missionaries, and they were to missionize the Lakota of that reservation. And so anyway, you had a group of German missionaries who had just been kicked out of their homeland in Germany by uh, Bismarck and the Kulturkampf, and they were uh, sent to different parts of the world, mostly England and then the United States. And some of these Jesuits uh, ended up being missionaries throughout North America among Indians, and a certain group of them were uh, assigned to the Rosebud Lakota Reservation. And a number of them, again, kept diaries of their uh, experiences on the reservation and the different people they had met and uh, their, uh, their successes, but mostly their failures in trying to get this group of people to see the light and change their, what were considered by the um, missionaries and uh, Americans in general as savage habits and pagan habits to um, civilized uh, uh, American ways of being and, again, Catholicism for them. And so they kept copious, some of them at least, kept copious diaries and notes on, again, you know, their, um, their difficulties and their successes. Around what year was this? This was when they first arrived at... Uh, uh, on the reservation, and they built St. Francis Mission. This was in 1886. They came in 1886? They came, in eight, uh, they came to, to uh, the United States a little before that. They were working other places, but uh, they came to uh, Rosebud uh, in 1886 to do their work of uh, what was called at the time civilizing and Christianizing American Indians. In today's lingo, we would call this basically uh, social and religious assimilation. Well, during that time on the reservation, you decided to go to divinity school. And I'm curious to know more about what led you as a Jewish man to a Christian divinity school and what your experience was like. Yes, <laughs> and a lot of people ask that uh, in the divinity school. <laughs> but uh, first and foremost, I was trained as an anthropologist. I knew a lot about 
the Lakotas by that time, uh, their social life, their cultural life, but I did not know very much about Catholicism at that time. Uh, and so that was a real loophole in my study of uh, the relationship between the Catholic Church, the mission, and the Lakotas. And so unless I knew better the theology, the missiology of the uh, missionaries of the Jesuits in particular and the Franciscan sisters who came a little bit later, uh, I was not going to be able to write a decent, uh, uh, at that time, dissertation on what I was interested in finding out. And what I was interested in finding out was the conceptions that the missionaries had of the Lakotas and what they thought Indians, who they thought Indians were and what they should become and what the Lakotas made of all this going on. Why were these missionaries here and why did they want us to give up our valuable cultural and religious heritage? And so it was emphatic, I mean, it was just necessary that I uh, seek out a divinity school to learn more about Catholicism. And so I, one time I was in Chicago, I made a trip to the U of Chicago where there were some very good people, and I talked to a, a um, professor there named Martin Marty and then David Tracy, who was a Catholic theologian, and they encouraged me to come and study at the university there. And so I took a leave from uh, the, um, the mission, St. Francis Mission, and I headed off for Chicago. And I had a great time there. I learned an incredible amount from um, these very gifted teachers. I'm eternally grateful for them. The assignment on the reservation was supposed to be only for uh, two to three months, and you ended up living there on and off for 12 years. What led you to stay? Well, okay. Um, I had not originally come to Rosebud to do a study of the relationship between the Lakotas and the Catholic Church, the Catholic Mission, as a good anthropologist, what I had come to do was more of an anthropological study of contemporary moral uh, concepts and behavior among the Lakotas. And uh, we've already talked a little bit about the diaries. What changed my mind in terms of the orientation of my dissertation, and as it turned out, my life was what was in those diaries, and I got more and more interested in how the missionaries were under, understanding the Lakotas, understanding their goals as missionaries among this group of people, and again, on the other side, understanding as far as possible from the sources, reading between the lines, uh, what the Lakotas were making of this experience on, on their side. My original assignment or my original stay uh, originally elongated from two to three months after the superior of the mission, a wonderful, wonderful guy named uh, Robert Hilbert, uh, 
uh, found out what I was interested in doing, and he encouraged me, and he said, well, you know, you could become, uh, how about what we call this, an anthropological consultant for the pastoral <laughs> staff. And, uh, and then you could give talks to the pastoral staff, and you could also work in the museum uh, with an older man named George Tashunka Wakita, which means George Horsewhipping. And George was, uh, had just lost his wife, and he was a little bit lonely, and so the superior took me over to the museum, and he introduced me to, to George, who was about 70 years old at that time. It was, I wouldn't say love at first sight, but there was a real attraction <laughs> And he decided that he was going to make me, in his words, a Lakota Hokshila, which means a Indian boy, a Lakota boy. And part of that was teaching me the language, and part of that was putting his family to work, which, you know, I'm surprised him a little bit, but I think they got to like it, uh, about taking me to various ceremonies, uh, religious ceremonies, um, Lakota ceremonies and taking me to powwows and just having me hang around and learn as much as possible. The subsequent months and into years, I got more and more attached to the horse hookings and George in particular. Eventually, not very much longer than two years, George was diagnosed with inoperable cancer. And uh, instead of doing what a typical family might do, uh, a non-Indian family, his daughter, his oldest daughter, uh, May, took him into her house and gave him the back bedroom. And so he could, instead of staying in a hospital, he could stay with her and have relatives visit him all the time. And so this went on, and cancer got worse. And on the day, the night that he, he was destined to pass away, there must have been about 50 people from that family in this little house just crowding around. And they had notified me to come and I was there, and he was, George was in and out of consciousness. And what he was doing was incredibly important for an Lakota elder. He was doing what Lakota's phrase as, which means to lecture uh, younger people on the ways that they should live. And he would go again in and out of consciousness. And at one point he said, I know you all know this already, but I've taken Harvey as my son. And a little time after that, he finally you know, passed away. And after the immediate period of grief where everybody was crying and broken up, of course, what George's old, older son, oldest son, Collins did was he took me around to everybody in the room and introduced me using my kinship relationship with them. The term, the kinship term that I was understood to be 
vis-a-vis this person. And that was an amazing gift. That's as close as I think I've mentioned before to a conversion experience that I'll ever have in my life. And this is because the most important thing a Lakota can give to another human being is a relationship. And he had given me um, his family. And uh, that is basically how that initial period of two to three months got larger, what I did with my time there, and why I wanted to stay there as long as possible, because it was a very fulfilling life with people that had taken me in and given me incredibly valuable and loving gifts. That does sound very fulfilling. Did they... Did they give you an Indian name as well? They gave me, uh, uh, yeah, this is a big uh, joke, uh, kind of it's a funny joke. Um, but uh, I was studying Lakota with George, and we were, we, we'd talk. He'd he'd just talk to one another, and then we used uh, a dictionary, books, everything we could get our hands on to help us, uh, you know, with the lessons. And we were using this textbook, and one of the students mentioned in the textbook uh, in, a, in a lesson was named Twyla Buyamani, Buyamani, uh, which means walks with a noise, Buya, noisy, money walker. And that just broke him up. And he said, you know, <laughs> I think that's going to be her name. So say, so, say it for us again. Booyah money. Booyah money. Booyah money. Booyah and money. again, said maybe something like, well, couldn't you name me Crazy Horse or something like that? Yeah. Or Brave Eagle or something oh. like that? No, booyah money sounds pretty good. <laughs> sounds like I had a great sense of humor as well. Yes. Yeah, I love I love that story. And to think that uh, you'd only be there for a few months and you ended up years later with an extended family, probably not what you thought you were signing up for. <laughs> right, not in the beginning. Uh, yes. Yeah, George was, if you don't mind me coming in no, here, please. George was a great, great teacher in so many different ways. And so I was working in the museum with him, and there were cases with a lot of Indian materials, artifacts, and he would take me around to give me the Lakota names for these artifacts, and he would talk about their uses. And so one of the artifacts we came across was a lance that had been covered with otter fur, river otter fur. I said, well, why did they cover it with river otter fur? And he said, well, that was to make horses fast when they were traveling in water, when they entered a river. So I said, though fur uh, represented speed, and he thought for a second And he said, kind of, but no, it was speed. And what he was trying to communicate there was incredibly important. It was not a symbolic reference to speed. It was not a, you know, metaphoric reference to speed. 
the fur itself, the otter skin itself, communicated speed, so it was sacred power. And that is so much of a difference between Jewish and Christian and Islam understandings of um, the nature of different beings in the world and the Lakota and most American Indian understandings of the nature of beings in the world. Each being has a kind of power and it can communicate this power if appealed to and prayed to in a certain way. And so that is one of the central tenets of Lakota uh, belief and practice, religious belief and practice. You spoke of learning the Lakota language with George, and you're fluent in Lakota. Um, but you've also said that fewer and fewer people speak it today. Why is preserving the language vital to the Lakota identity? Yes, and it has become a hub of importance to the Lakotas and other Indian groups as well, trying to maintain their languages because they are disappearing at an incredibly rapid speed. And um, the importance is, and I think many people understand this, maybe not at a conscious but a pre-conscious level, is that so much of what we understand about the nature of the world is communicated through our language to us, and it's structured in our language to us. And in a way, different cultures structure the world differently. Again, pluralistic worldviews are differentiated about uh, from the differences in their languages and how they divide the world up into different categories and they relate these categories in different ways to one another. And uh, as part of Indian policy in the name of assimilation, or once again, Christianization and civilization, the goal of the federal government was to basically end the language and basically teach all the students how to speak English in order to integrate them into the mainstream. They did this a lot of times in very heavy-handed and brutal ways, and this is getting to be more and more recognized uh, if people read about boarding schools, Indian boarding schools. Kids were punished pretty, uh, pretty heavily sometimes for speaking uh, their native languages. And this was a lesson uh, a psychological lesson that came through to the students. And so when George was teaching me the language uh, and speaking to me in Lakota, um, one time his, one of his grandchildren came up and he, the grandchild was really attentive to what we were talking about. And he seemed to want to be part of this. And so he said something about this and he said, no, no, no. You uh, you shouldn't learn this. Uh, Meaning uh, that George was saying that, yeah, that yes. his grandchild should not learn the language. Yeah, you should you should you should learn English, and this was before again the heavy emphasis on on uh, learning or maintaining Indian languages. This was before the big move had set in, and and so I I asked George. I said, you know, like. Well, 
you put all this effort into teaching me Lakota. I'm, I'm not Lakota, you know. And George looked at me and said, well, you know what you want. You're an adult. I want my grandchild to have as great a chance of success as possible. And I thought, this is really a tragedy. Yeah, especially because, you know, you had said upon his deathbed that he was passing along stories, and that was so important to him. Yes. Yet here is a, the, the language that sounds like it's dying out, Yeah. and he wasn't preserving that. He did not. And this is, you know, when you think about it, this is not a something that is unique to Indian people. You know, how many groups come over from Europe in the early 1900s, pre-World War II, and insisted that their kids learn English and refused to speak, speak their languages in you know, front of them and because they would succeed in their new home if they had a good grasp of their, their new language, the new language, English. It's a tragedy that uh, extends beyond Indian people, but not too many other languages are facing extinction like American Indian languages are. And there's, so are you, are you still in touch with the horse-looking family, and are you, is there anyone within that family that you still speak Lakota with? Uh, yes, I am in touch. Uh, it's mostly, <laughs> it's mostly uh, through the web, you know, email. <laughs> they are modern Lakotas and, uh, and uh, Facebook. And so pretty much every day I get uh, a message from basically the grandkids and great-grandkids of the elders that I worked with originally. George and his, again, and his uh, children and their children and grandchildren. And yeah, I do, to the extent possible, try to use Lakota with them. Some of the kids and grandkids have a, a passive knowledge of the language, so when they hear the language, they could un- identify what's being said but it's harder for them to be active in it and uh, and use it to construct conversations, you know, mm. which is really a shame because so much of the humor <laughs> and so much uh, of uh, the day-to-day life is captured in that language. Yeah. Well, gender and how we talk about it is a fascinating conversation in, in society today. Is gender an important component of the Lakota language? Yes, it is and it isn't. Uh, it's uh, not highlighted uh, highlighted as you would see, for example, in English where pronouns are gender marked. There is no division between he and she pronouns in Lakota. Uh, that's not a distinction. But there are different ways for men and women to speak. Traditionally, there were more rules, but there's still some rules, especially informal talking when you're giving a speech, for example, how a man and woman will speak. And these are communicated a lot of times in what are called enclitics in uh, linguistics, and that's how you end a sentence or a statement. And so men 
if they were traditionally asking a question would end with the enclitic quo, and women would end in, hey, this kind of has broken down, so men now use hey quite a bit. And so it isn't kind of, you, you don't get the raised eyebrow if you're using hey and you're a man. I mean, that doesn't really follow anymore. Another example is when men are ending a statement, they'll use, and this still exists, yellow. And women use kshto. And that still is maintained. And there's a number of others, uh, a number of other enclitics, which basically are employed both formally and for the most part informally as appropriate gender-constructed language. So while you don't have pronouns <laughs> that distinguish male from female, you do have these other ways of, um, of speaking that do. It sounds confusing. Well, it can be, you know, like, and it does give rise when you're learning the language to some <laughs> very interesting mistakes. And there's some, I've made some whoppers. And so anyway, but people just take it as good humored. And it. Uh, there's a great example I could give you. When a, a friend of mine was getting, going to get married, a male, I had just learned the word for married, higanaton, uh, and I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to use this as quickly as possible because, you know, this is good. I'm going to be learning, building my language, and people will be impressed with it. <laughs> and so I made the statement that so-and-so was going to higanaton, and that everybody went, old women go, who he? which is an expression of surprise. <laughs> and the men there just laughed. And they said, no, when a man, man gets married, it's tachuton, which means take a wife, as opposed to taking take, a husband. <laughs> and so, you know, like in any language learning, you know, the, the person learning the language is going to make a load of mistakes. So it sounds and like you provided entertainment I for those around you. I did indeed. I did indeed. <laughs> so I'd like to, to talk for a moment about the terminology that we use when referring to indigenous tribes in North America. I've heard some people use the term Native American, while others use the term American Indian, and still others say First Nations. What is the term scholars use today? Yeah, there's a big division in the United States. Uh, in Canada, scholars mostly use First Nation. In the United States, there's a division between using American Indian versus Native American, Native American to make up for Columbus's bad directions. So what I found out, you know, just experientially, you know, is that if it's a choice between the two terms, most of the people that I talked to preferred American Indian to Native American for various reasons. They, they had their own reasons for doing this. But it's important to insist that the term that they preferred was their tribal name. You know, Lakotas would prefer 
rather than being referred to as Native American or American Indian, would prefer to be referred to as Lakotas. And this underscores a very, very important point, and it's a social and political point that's very important for non-Indians especially to remember, is that both Native American and American Indian are terms that are foreign. I mean, these were constructions by people outside their traditions. Most American Indian groups, tribes, another term applied to American Indian groupings, think of themselves as independent from other tribes. And they have their own creation stories, they have their own relationship with their spirits and gods, and they have their own relationship with their landscapes. And so it's very important to demarcate that specialness with their tribal name as opposed to this generic name. Now, they recognize the importance of generic names when it comes to social and political issues that as a block, as a political block, you get more representation if you have this group vying for certain rights. But in terms of their own existence, their own day-to-day existence, I believe that most people in different Indian groups would be preferred to be referred to by their tribal names. So if you can learn someone's tribal name, you should use that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, in, in higher education today, we often hear speakers acknowledge the original people of the land on which they stand. What do Lakotas and other tribal communities think about such acknowledgments? They, as I understand it again, and again, I'm not Native. I didn't, I wasn't born Lakota, and so everything that I think I've learned has been a gift from talking with other people, talking with Lakota people and talking with other Indian groups that I've uh, worked with. They have a close bond with their homeland. And it's because they see their connection with their homeland and everything in their homeland, their landscape, as being founded on this web of relationships, which is a moral web. And so they understand their relationship and the universe as a large as being constructed of an intricate number and a innumerable number of moral social relationships. Because, and in Lakota, you have the key phrase, mitakwe oyasi which means all my relations. And what's meant there is not that uh, you're not just talking about your human relations, but you're talking about everything. And for Lakotas, traditionally at least, that included what we would refer to as inanimate objects, rocks, rivers, the wind. So everything, once again, has a spirit, has a sacred power. And again, if you live in a harmonious universe, you can tap using the correct rites and rituals for this power, for ceremonies, for example. Those who have chosen to stand outside this relationship and become non-kin because of their behavior are considered enemies. The landscape, the homeland of Lakotas, especially I'm talking mostly about Lakotas, but I think this applies to 
most if not all American groups, uh, Indian groups, is basically a consequence of this vision of the universe as being based in a set of moral relationships. And this is the way that they, you know, understand, again, their interactions with their homelands. And so it's important not only that they think about this uh, when they're doing their ceremonies, when they're doing uh, their prayers and stuff, but, you know, to the extent that outsiders have done damage to their landscapes and alienated them from their landscapes has been to the detriment and the destruction of these relationships. And even though the cultists live in these little blocks of reservations now, they appreciate the fact that these, these areas contain segments of their homelands, their traditional homelands. And so... They're grateful for that, I think. And this, again, goes for most American Indian groups, except for those who, unfortunately, in the 1830s were removed to Oklahoma by um, President Jackson. Uh, so they lost that intimate connection with their original landscape. And so the fact that institutions like WNL and more and more institutions are acknowledging the importance of the relationships that Indian people had with their traditional landscapes is so important, I, I believe, you know, if it's done authentically and not just as a, yeah, we got to do this. Yeah, check the box. Yeah. Well, we've talked about land acknowledgments. We've talked about learning tribal names. Are there any other sensitivities that we should be aware of? Well, there's always... <laughs> Yes, uh, you know, of course, this isn't um, native language, but, you know, the big one up until a year or two ago was Redskins, mm. you know. Yes, that, and that's been changed. So. <laughs> yeah, and that, that eventually changed, yeah. but it took a hell of a long time yeah. to, for that to change. And that was an affront. I mean, that was an incredible affront to Indian people. Now, naming a ball team, hockey team, or whatever, uh, after a tribe. You know, sometimes the tribes really like that. For example, Chicago Blackhawks, that was, you know. But Indian Joe, no. You know, these demeaning uses, not only of words, but of actions, like the tomahawk chop, Mm. the Atlanta Braves, you know, are just incredibly demeaning. And, and have uh, they done away with that? Hmm? Have they done away yeah, with that? Yeah, I think they haven't. They haven't. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they should. They should. Yeah, that is I a agree. really an offensive, an offensive thing. Yeah, yeah, you would think with all of the discussion surrounding the changing of the, the Redskins name that other, other teams would have had those yeah. conversations too. Right. And, and so, you know, and this is not just professional ball. I mean, this goes to colleges, universities, high schools. Can't tell how many high schools are named, you know, the Warriors, you know, like, it, you know, so it just kind of goes throughout the system. And there's more change going on, I think, at the professional level than there is at lower levels of sports. 
And so it's just pervasive. Yeah. Well, thank you for helping us better understand that. And as you've said, you know, language and its preservation are so important. And I'd like to take a few minutes now and expose our listeners to some Lakota language. For our lightning round today, <laughs> would you help us hear Lakota? I'd like to give you some English words and ask you for the Lakota translations. Okay. That's your game? All right. So, hello. How? Oh, except for a woman. This is one of the distinctions. Okay. How for man, huh for woman. Huh. Okay. Um, how about my name is Harvey. What is your name? Harvey Amachiapi. Taganichiapihe. Please and thank you. Pilamaye. Pilamaye? Pilamaye. 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 Would be, you know, thank you. And please is kind of difficult. It doesn't really have a direct translation. Um, it's not that there aren't occasions that we would say calls for a please. But there are kinds of endings, again, in critics which communicate, please, like uh, in a command, a man will use uh, uh, yo, but when he's trying to say please, he'll use ye. And so that's a way that you would say please. You'd make a statement and then you'd add kind of a please uh, onto it by the syncritic, yeah. How about I'm sorry? Uh, How are you today? Where did you come from? Farewell. Farewell. I was going to try and repeat that to say farewell. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm going to attempt that. What you, what you can say is doksha. That's a shorthand. Doksha. Doksha, yeah, Harvey. Right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate having you here. Whoa, Peter Tanka. Thank you very much. And thank you and our listening audience for tuning in today. We hope you'll visit our website, wlu.edu slash lifelong, where you can find our show notes as well as a truly great selection of other WNL lifelong learning opportunities. Take a look, and until next time, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.